0: All right, friends, today we'll be finishing up on our short mini-series on faith and work. And there's certainly a lot more that the Bible says about work and that we can explore. But our hope was that at least for the past couple of sermons, we would have been able to give you the bullseye, right? The Bible's ideal vision of what the relationship between faith and work ideally would be. And just to sum it up for you, uh, it has to do a lot with wholeness, right, both personally as individual Christians and collectively as the people of God. And if you re-listen to Tazar 's sermon a couple of weeks ago, he talks about how ideally every Christian would be an integrated worker, that we're not supposed to be Christians just on Sundays alone, but we live out our Christian values in all aspects of our lives, including our workplace. And last week, I talked about how the context of all of our work is actually in exile, meaning in a situation where the culture and values of the places in which we work is often foreign and at odds to what we believe as Christians. However, the mission of God's people here on earth is actually to be God's agents of peace or shalom, right? actively partnering with God in His work of bringing wholeness and healing to this broken creation wherever we find ourselves to be. Remember that? So, that's the ideal target. And I think what's worth discussing now as we close out this topic for now is what we could start to do when we eventually run into obstacles. Right, Because if any of us have tried to do this in any public way, we will soon find out that it's much more complicated than we will ever thought it could be. Things won't always be black and white. And there are a lot of occasions where what is the good and Christian thing won't always be clear to us. And there will be times, friends, where we will encounter Resistance. When we don't fulfill some kind of expectations or when the results of our work are mixed. And at times even, the people who we would hope support us are actually the ones who bring about this resistance. Have any of you experienced that? Perhaps your colleagues or your family members have questioned or criticized your decisions or even your competency as a worker. Honestly, I'm even prone to doing this to myself when my work isn't producing what I hope for. Always having to fend off this self-doubt and anxiety and resisting the urge to ask, am I good enough? Should I be doing something else? Should I be something more? Because indeed, friends, in a broken world that's full of sinful people, work can be a very confusing and overwhelming situation, especially when we're genuinely trying to passionately do the right thing. And it's not hard to feel lost and alone if we attempt to navigate through these challenges using our own power and wisdom. Now, this Sunday, we'll be looking at a passage that Perhaps isn't one of the first passage that we would think about when we're talking about faith and work, but it is certainly very relevant. Because what we find in our passage is a paradigm for how we can remain on mission when things aren't working out as we expected. Right, it's gonna be taken from the letter of 1 Corinthians, one of the clearest letters where we can find instruction about how to think about life and faith in every area of life, through the lens of the gospel. And Paul here is responding to a church that he planted, but it isn't really working out as expected. So let's read it together from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26 to 2, verse 5. This is the Word of God. For consider your calling, brothers... in the presence of God. And because of Him, you who are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts boast in the Lord. And when I came to you, brothers, I did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not plausible uh, in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God." Thus ends the reading of the word of the Lord. Blessed be His name. Okay, so what we just read was actually the middle of a much larger ongoing correspondence between Paul and this Corinthian church. So Let me give you guys a bit of context about this church in Corinth that Paul was writing to here. And it's important to really make sense of what's going on. So this letter to the Corinthian church was written to a church that was actually a major port city in the region, which means that it's a huge economic hub, but also at the same time, it is also a place of great learning, right, with all kinds of philosophical and religious ideas being exchanged there. So Paul actually chose to come to the city strategically as a missionary because it was so influential, and Paul spent a year and a half in Corinth to plant the church, which eventually he succeeded, right? And you can read all about this in Acts 18. Therefore, Paul here wasn't at all talking about some strangers. This was a community that Paul knows intimately and that he is deeply invested into their welfare. However, it turns out after he moved on to plant churches in other cities, he finds out that there are serious problems in this church. And if you read the whole letter, I think we can boil down the problem to this, that this church was unable to navigate through the cultural expectation and norms of their city in a gospel-centered way, such that they succumbed to these pressures and gave in to an ethic of compliance, right? Recall the sermon last week whereby they were willing to compromise their Christian faith and were beginning to normalize values and behaviors that are simply incompatible with the teachings of Jesus. And this totally broke Paul's heart. So, Paul tries to remedy the situation by writing these comprehensive letters that details to them in various ways that, first of all, what the gospel really says, and second of all, showing them how they're not actually living out to what they say they believe. And what we just read just now was the beginning of this plea. And based on what Paul said, I think we can find three helpful things that we too can do so that we can keep calm and carry on under whatever pressures that can feel like crushing pressures that we face at work, right? So our three points today: when things are working out, we always can. One, consider why you we were called. Two, commend the one who called us. And three, commit to the cruciform life. Consider, commend commit. All right, we'll get into it. Brothers and sisters, for this particular sermon, uh, I think it will be helpful to have your Bibles open on your apps instead of just relaying on the printout, or if you actually have physical Bibles and your retro like that, that's cool, do that, as I will be referring to the text surrounding this passage and other p- parts of the Bible, okay? So, may the words of our mouths and the meditation of our hearts this morning be acceptable in Lord's sight. Let's get into it. Point one, consider why you we were called. So if we backtrack a few verses in chapter 1, verse 10, we'll find that the first problem that Paul was trying to address up to chapter 3 and the main issue that the church is facing here is that they've actually been influenced by the cultural expectations of what legitimate spiritual leadership is like. And consequently, the church became divided. So after Paul left there, there were these other good teachers that came and ministered to them. And the people in the church actually started comparing between these teachers and started picking their favorite preachers. And they sort of became groupies behind their favorite figure and proceeded to dismiss and disrespect other people who favored someone else right? That never happens today, right? And I'm being sarcastic if you don't know. But so what happened was they were starting to judge these preachers and pit them against one another based on their cultural presuppositions, which consequently made some in their church actually turn against Paul, who probably is the last person who needs to prove himself to them. After all, he planted this church, and they would have seen for his hand how much Paul had to endure to preach the gospel to them, and how they got their friends, how they got themselves in this position, you see, was because the culture of the people of Corinth was highly influenced by the teachings of what were called the sophists, right? And this is an ancient Greek philosophy that says that the person who has the most authority and the most wisdom was the one who's more eloquent. That basically, the one who spoke better and the one who had better rhetoric and more impressive arguments was the right one. And we can read later in 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 10, that Paul was well aware of his lowly, expectation, uh, lowly reputation as a public speaker. In fact, we know that in the book of Acts that a child fell to his death because he fell asleep in one of Paul's sermons. So maybe they weren't wrong. Therefore, In their estimation, Paul didn't live up to their culture's expectations of what someone who is of religious influence should be like. And in their eyes, this lessened the legitimacy of Paul's witness. Then in verse 18, right, Paul begins to respond to them actually quite sharply. By first, by pointing out that the gospel isn't supposed to be impressive to any human culture. Nor was it ever trying to be. He says that to the Greeks, the gospel was foolishness, and to the Jews, powerless. You see, Paul here is arguing that no human culture, I mean every human culture, rather, can find fault with the gospel, the most magnificent revelation of God's loving character. To the point that, at some point, every culture will stop being impressed, and start rejecting the gospel. Paul's whole point, then, therefore, is that we who are spiritual should not be judging anything, especially not ministers of God's Word, according to worldly standards. Because if we do, we will actually miss the point. And this is what Paul invites us to start seeing see in verse 26, where you can see that at risk of insulting them, Paul points out that the people of the Corinthian church themselves weren't the kind of people who would have been considered impressive by their cultural context he says not many of them were powerful or wise or of noble birth but the beautiful thing is that even so the almighty god chose them anyway to be his people to be his bride to be his body so why does god choose those who seem to be less deserving, such an exalted calling. And this is what's so beautifully communicated there in verses 27 to 29. Let's read it again. I love this. This is so profound. He says, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. You see, friends, what these verses are teaching us is that God is in the business of subverting, shaming, and turning upside down the world's standards and expectations of power. God wants to humble the world by elevating those who are considered weak and powerless. Those who are considered to be least worthy in the eyes of the world. He elevates so that He can rule the world, so that He can show off His power by bringing shalom and restoration and wholeness through the weak. You see, friends, God empowers us, not so that we can look great nor to affirm that we are worthy or capable of being great, but so that the world will know how magnificent and how powerful our God is so that no man can boast. Now, there is a huge difference, though, between the members of the Corinthian church and Covenant City Church, Jakarta. Because I don't think that we can say that we are also People who are not considered to be wise or powerful or of noble birth in our culture. Though I'm sure most of us can find people who are more privileged than we are, the fact that we are members of an English speaking church that meets in this beautiful theater right in the center of the mega city of Jakarta is alone evidence that we have enjoyed a level of privilege and education that really separates us from most people here in Indonesia. Wouldn't you agree? And this privilege, friends, is both a help and a hindrance. Because on the one hand, this privilege is great because it does give us access to resources and opportunities that most of the world can only dream of. But on the other hand, it can be a hindrance. How? Well, one of the ways, at least, is that there are So many possibilities for us, and consequently, there are always also proportionally as many expectations, isn't there? I mean, even the Bible says, to whom much is given, much is required. And what always comes with expectations and requirements, pretentiousness and pressure. Pretentiousness and how our privilege actually makes us sinfully believe that we're better or more important than other people. And related to that, pressure. And the fact that because we've been given so much more, we are told to make best use of that. And that looks like being educated to a certain degree, being able to afford a certain lifestyle, or achieving a certain level of wealth and prestige, living up to all of these cultural expectations of success. Otherwise, we would be thought of as wasted potential or a bad investment. Right? Have you experienced this? Because the message is, because we've been given more, we should make more, we should have more, we should be more. I mean, it's definitely wise to make the most of what we're given. Don't get me wrong. But if we let the world dictate what our definition of the most is, and we suddenly find ourselves in a position like Paul, at risk of being thought of as low in the eyes of the world, what's going to happen is that our identity is going to be rattled. We're going to begin to question our abilities, our calling even our worth, while anxiously trying to fulfill the culture's expectations, feeling the weight of expectations heavily on our shoulders, just hoping that we can fulfill them and make it before we break. However, Paul, however, friends, you see, Paul wasn't rattled under the pressure when they were questioning his legitimacy and judging him according to worldly expectations. But somehow, we see him standing firm and, in fact, doubling down on his mission instead. Saying, in effect, you think I'm a weak failure, but my God has me exactly where He wants me. And you see, Paul was able to do that because he can differentiate himself from the culture because he has a clear idea about what he is meant to do, where the mentality is, nope, I'm not trying to live up your expectations, but God has a greater purpose for me, our shared purpose. And this is what is next in point two. So point two, commend the one who called us. Now notice in verse 30, this is such a packed sentence that beautifully explains to us that though we may miss, miss out on some worldly privileges, those who are called by God is actually given, are actually given something of eternal value. Let me just read this one too. Okay? It says, And because of Him, you who are in Christ Jesus, who became to us the wisdom of God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Okay, so there are two things being communicated here. First of all, that Jesus became to us the wisdom of God. And what this means is that through Jesus, we know as perfectly as humanly possible what God is like, what's in His heart, how God thinks about things, and how He operates. Therefore, friends, through Jesus, we actually discover a counter-paradigm of success that is radically in contrast to the world such that we who are called to be followers of Jesus must measure and have our reference of success be shaped by the life and teachings of Jesus and never by the standards and requirements that our culture tries to impose on us. Then related to that, the second thing here, that given that we answer our calling from God by faithfully imitating Christ in our particular context and using His life and teaching as a model of how we should live our lives, we can enjoy three privileges that followers of Jesus can have exclusive access to. Three things that can never be taken away from us no matter what happens to us here on earth. And I think it's worth spending some time defining these so that we can be more thankful for them and be intentionally more enjoying them as we live our life on earth, okay? So first of all, it says here, there's righteousness. This refers to not only the ability to do good things or be considered as a good person, but a more biblical understanding of this, that righteousness is the state of being in right relationship, both with our neighbor, but more importantly, with our God. And this is such a magnificent truth, isn't it? However, we Christians often take it for granted, forgetting that we actually have no right for our relationship with God to be this way, that we and our sins have actually made ourselves enemies of God, and sin is like this barrier that separated us from God, but God took the initiative to Christ to break down these walls through loving us instead of punishing us, such that we can be reconciled with Him. So righteousness means that in Christ we are accepted. Then secondly, there is sanctification. This refers to the process of being made holy unto God. And holiness is, of course, not primarily the state of moral purity and perfection, but if we look at the Bible, it's actually mainly talking about being set apart for the purposes of God, being made pure for God. That now, we have actually been made worthy of God, of being near His presence, of being His partner. So righteousness makes us accepted, sanctification makes us worthy. And lastly here, there's also redemption. And this refers now to the state of being freed of the legal guilt of sin I'd no longer have to bear the punishment of sin, death, and being free to enjoy a coming age where there will be no more sin, and we can be, as the song reminds us, in Zion City, forever walking beside our King and enjoying the blessed presence of Christ face to face, where we'll finally. Behold the Lord, the beauty and glory of the Lord in His heavenly temple. In other words, our redemption means that we who are in Christ are always secure. We are accepted by God, we are worthy for God, and we are secure in God. These are things that can never be taken away from us because they were never earned by us. God graciously has given them to to us through the death and resurrection of Christ. So I think Paul is saying here in verse 31 that if we treasure these things, these three things, above all else that we can ever achieve or have on earth, if these three truths become the definition of our identity, the core of who we are, then we'll be able to see Scripture fulfilled. That we will be among those who boast in the Lord. And Paul specifically said in verse 31 that he's referencing Scripture, so we should probably go look it up to see what he means. And for this one, I'm going to do something crazy, and I'm going to get you guys to read it with me like we read our call to worship, okay? So I asked the team to put it up in behind me, is it up there? Yes, it is. Great. Okay? Ready? One, two, three. Jeremiah 9, 20, 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches. But let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who practices steadfast love justice and righteousness in the earth. For in these things, I delight, declares the Lord. Friends, this one is worth memorizing and meditating on over and over again. Because what it's hammering home for us is what we sing in many of our songs, isn't it? That if we indeed make the truth that we are accepted and worthy and secure in Christ, the fine our identity, the things of the earth will go strangely dim. Indeed, all else will be naught save that thou art, and our heart will truly find its greatest treasure in that Christ is ours forevermore. And this is, I can't begin to describe how important this is, friends. Because when we actually make our connection with God the most valuable thing for us and what keeps us going, what gets us up in the morning, not only can we be more resilient to the anxiety of not having perhaps as much wisdom, might, and riches as we would like because we now can genuinely believe that these things aren't actually what actually ultimately matters, but it also frees us to using whatever wisdom might and riches that we do have in the service of that which makes God delight love, justice, and righteousness. Because we'd be quite eager on investing and in starting projects that bring about these things, that bring about shalom wherever we are. Simply because that's what really matters to God. So you can happily give away our money. And it shouldn't matter if we get the credit or have all the authority because why we're doing it is not for our own glory and acknowledgement, but it is to commend or to bring praise to the excellencies of Him who brought us out of darkness and into His marvelous light. This, friends, is how God will put to shame and bring to nothing the wise and strong in this world, not by means of tanks and guns or clever arguments, but by presenting to them individuals and communities who are living differently, who are not dragged into this world sick game of being dog-eat-dog, but rather are genuinely happy to thoughtfully and passionately spend their time and resources towards making the world a better place. And somehow are able to be stable, content, and have this peace that surpasses understanding, even in the most turbulent and unstable kinds of situations. To the point where people who have more Then us might even wonder, man, what am I doing with my life? I need what these guys have. Have you ever met anyone like this? It's really quite inspiring if you do, but they are indeed few and far between. I certainly feel like I'm not there yet. And that's because it's absolutely, exceptionally difficult to live like this. And we will never even find the willingness to even try living like this unless we are like Paul. And we have fixed in our sights and have committed in our hearts the following, the paradigm of a truly blessed life. Thus, point three, commit to the cruciform life. Now, this point is going to be more brief, and it's certainly not because there's not enough In what remains of our passage, on the contrary, it can be a sermon unto itself. But for the sake of time, let me just focus one thing that Paul said in chapter 2, verse 1 to 5. And that's in verse 2, which is really the heart of what he really wants us to understand. He says, talking about his ministry to the church that he planted but are now doubting him, I resolve to know nothing among you but Christ and Him crucified. Now, what's interesting here, right, is that Paul specifically chose the category of Christ being crucified to give him strength amidst the rejection and betrayal he was experiencing through his church, right? I mean, he could have said Christ resurrected, Christ glorified, Christ Lord of the universe. And these are certainly true things and paul does refer to these things on other occasions when he's talking about something else but it seems like when his legitimacy is questioned when there is this strained relationship when he's in a low point of trouble it is of particular importance to paul and to the community who are questioning him to meditate upon the fact that the christ was crucified And I think this is because for a community that thinks of themselves as elevated, right, at least enough to judge and rank apostles who are ministering to them and who are saying that they want to relate Christ as an elevated Lord, Paul thought that it was a powerful reminder to them that the elevated Christ, the Lord of glory and our Savior, ascended to this place of authority, honor, and power by means of of the cross, the most humiliating, dishonorable kind of death in their culture. This is why he went on to point out in chapter 1, verse 23 to 24, to say that this truth was a stumbling block for Jews and folly to the Gentiles. See, because he doesn't expect just anyone to get him, in verse 3 and 5, we see that Paul isn't worried about being judged as weak by anyone. It wasn't an issue for Paul that he was vulnerable and people saw that he was afraid or exhausted. Nor did it bother Paul, friends, when people thought that his public speaking performance was not as impressive as anybody else's. Because what was supposed to ground the faith of this church was never any of his personal merits but it was always supposed to be on the manifestation of God's power in their own lives. Now, the demonstration of spirit and power here in verse 4 is almost certainly not talking about miracles, right? Paul's going to go on in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 to 14 to rebuke those who are trying to show off and be prideful about their signs of wonders. Hence, it'll be pretty hypocritical of Paul here if he's trying to flex his miracles right now. Rather, what makes most sense to me is that the power of God that he was talking about is the power of the Holy Spirit in the work of conversion in this church. Despite in whatever way Paul was lacking, in whatever deficiencies he had, the Corinthian church still exists. God still exists blessed his ministry, and people still came to faith in Jesus. Consequently, Paul fully understands that he has no right to boast about any of that because the Holy Spirit deserves credit for all of that. And Paul is totally cool with that. He was just happy he made it on the team. And this explains, friends, that despite whatever setbacks, and if you were with us last year as we studied the book of Acts, there were many severe setbacks in his ministry. Paul was never discouraged about imitating Jesus and self sacrificially working to testify to the love of Christ in word and deed wherever he happens to be. He's willing to continue whatever disrespect, whatever cost, whatever suffering that might come with the job because all Paul cares about is to be able to comprehend the breadth and length and height and width of the love of Christ that saved him so that for him, it's actually an honor to suffer like Christ our Lord. Friends, whatever privileges we happen to have now, Whatever wealth, whatever wisdom, whatever power we have, and I'm quoting Paul here, is trash compared to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ our Lord. Therefore, an inseparable part of that is that, is that we join Him in his journey to glory, but this journey is always through suffering. So in the face of whatever discouraging setback, whatever disrespect, whatever unfairness that we face at work, whatever it is that is tempting you, conform to the norms of and expectations of this world instead of following Christ. I encourage all of us today to anchor our identity and the fact that we've already been accepted, we're already worthy, and we're already eternally secure in Christ. Then commit to a life patterned after the way of the cross. A cruciform life. Right? Meaning we forget about pursuing our own selfish gain and glory and devote ourselves for, for the sake of others. Then, as it is written, we will see the power of God take you from one degree of glory to another but if you're not a follower of Jesus but you're sick of being weighed down by the world's expectation that's heavy on you right now and you feel like you need this acceptance, worthiness and security to anchor your soul on, I'm telling you right now friends that this is offered to you today if you let Jesus be your Lord if you believe in his heart that he is God and God raised him from the grave, your worth is no longer defined by how much you make or how high your position is, but by the fact that right now God is calling you and wants to show off his power through you. You want that? Will you let him? I pray that you do. Let us pray. God of heaven, Lord, you have given us a peace that surpasses understanding because you have shown us your son. Father, we feel every day the pressures of the world trying to lead us astray. But Father, you are our light and our salvation, our hope in our time of need. Lord, I pray that you can make evident to us that you are more valuable, that you are worthy, that the deepest desire of our heart becomes the fellowship with you and to know you and to partner with you in all that we do. We repent, O oh Lord, of our selfish ambition and allow us to redirect our lives through the wisdom that you give us from the Holy Spirit to follow you and to be about what you're about, restoring and healing this world for the sake of your glory. In his name we pray, amen.